So one of the best and most cherished memories of my wedding was a brief moment standing under the chuppah when I looked out at all of the people who had come to celebrate our marriage. These were friends and family who had traveled across oceans and continents to be there, each carrying a piece of the story that had led my husband and me to that particular place on that particular day as we began to write a new chapter of our lives together. There was so much love in that room. Love wearing its many and its varied faces. Mother, sister, uncle, childhood friend, grandmother, half-brother, college roommate, cousin, step-parent. And so as we said our vows to each other, the love we offered was in some ways not our own, but the sum of that which we had been given by every person present in that room. So perhaps it might strike you as a bit odd that I share this memory, considering my husband and I separated this past January and finalized our divorce just a few months ago. Remembering my wedding still brings me so much joy, but it's a joy that's become entangled with grief and with doubt and with anger. In the months following my divorce, as I began to slowly share the news with the concentric circles of friends and family and coworkers and congregants, the first thing that most people said to me was, I'm sorry. And there are many reasons to be sorry about divorce, reasons that I'm sure some people in this room know all too well. It is a difficult process that even in the best of cases, strains your patience and your compassion and your resolve. And I'm sure that most of the time, people said, I'm sorry, from a place of care and concern. But I was so caught up in my own mess, my own heartbreak and self-doubt, that what I heard were two distinct messages. The first message I heard was, I'm sorry, your marriage is broken. And they weren't wrong. My marriage was broken, despite the seven years that we had put into building a relationship that could endure the challenges that come simply from the fact that we're alive. It only took a few difficult and contentious months to completely dismantle it. Assets were divided. We each took a pet. Bank accounts were closed. Names were changed on deeds and wills and insurance policies and loyalty programs and emergency contacts. Threads that had tied us together, both important and trivial, were deliberately and painfully unknotted. The second message that I heard was, I'm sorry that you failed to fix it, that you couldn't work it out that you couldn't piece it back together, that you wasted seven years and now all that you have to show for it is a half-empty house and legal bills and regret. We had tried couples counseling, but somehow the conversation could never move beyond finger-pointing. We attempted sleeping in separate rooms, thinking that some time apart could let us sort through whatever was bothering us, but a lack of proximity only widened the gap between us. And so when one of us said for the hundredth time in the hundredth argument that maybe we should just get divorced, we become so exhausted by failure that the other person could only say yes. I'm sorry your marriage is broken. I'm sorry you failed to fix it. 
On Rosh Hashanah, we stand at the inflection point between two years. And one of the tasks of this moment is to look back at the year we are leaving behind with both its blessings and its hardships and consider how we might not have been our best selves. What promises did we break? What responsibilities did we neglect? What wounds did we inflict on the world, on others, on ourselves, and left holding the broken pieces of my marriage so aware of my failure to fit them back together, I began to suspect that the problem was me all along. Perhaps I'm the broken thing. Maybe I'm the failure. One of the stories we tell on this holiday is about a woman named Hannah. She had been married for many years to a man named Elkanah, who, in the custom of the time, had taken a second wife named Penina. And while Hannah was deeply loved by her husband, she had been unable to conceive. However, on the other hand, Penina had been blessed with several children. And so Hannah felt a deep shame every year as they made the journey to Jerusalem, as Elkanah offered sacrifices on behalf of each member of his family. One sacrifice for Hannah, many sacrifices for Penina and her children. Other women looked at her with pity. I'm sorry, they said to her as they gathered outside the temple. I'm sorry that you failed to conceive. I'm sorry that you have failed in your duty as a wife. I'm sorry that you have failed to make your husband happy. And so Hannah began to dread this annual pilgrimage her tears coming sooner and heavier each time they approached the holy city. And so one year, Hannah had become so inconsolable that she was unable to take part in the festivities and sat apart from her family. Why are you crying? Elkanah asked. You are more precious to me than children. But Hannah, so consumed by her sense of failure, was unable to understand how her husband could still love her. And desperate to get away from everything that reflected her shame, Hannah runs to the temple and throws herself to the ground. Then something miraculous happens. Hannah begins to pray. She cries and she sobs, and she moans. Her lips move, but no sound emerges. She stands. In one moment, she's still. In the next, her entire body rocks with the force of her prayer. Hannah pours out her heart before God, and she slowly begins to understand that God is listening, that God is listening because she is speaking, that she is speaking because she deserves to be heard. And through the cracks of her broken heart, Hannah glimpses a courage and resilience that had been there all along, carrying her through the years of shame. So when the high priest, who had been watching her this whole time, walks over to her and says, woman, are you drunk? You should be ashamed of how you're acting in this sacred place. Hannah looks him straight in the eye and responds, I am not drunk. I am in pain. Do not take me for a worthless woman. I'm speaking out of my heartbreak. And what I hear her say in these words is you have no right to render judgment about things you don't understand. I am a reflection of the divine image, a being of inherent worth who deserves to be treated with dignity. While things may be broken, I am not a broken thing. While I may have failed... I am not a failure. While things may be broken, I am not a broken thing. 
while I have failed, I am not a failure. When speaking on how we respond to the inevitability of failure, the sociologist Brene Brown makes a careful distinction between guilt and shame. She explains that guilt says, I'm sorry that I made a mistake, while shame says, I'm sorry that I am a mistake. Guilt tells us that what we did was bad. On the other hand, shame tells us that we are bad. One of the refrains of the High Holidays is the vidui, a litany of ways that we have as individuals and as a community broken things, a litany of ways that we have failed. Ashamnu, bagadnu, gazalnu, dibarnu dofi. We have transgressed. We have done wrong. We have stolen. We have used our words to hurt one another. Would that we could say we have not sinned. Sin is hard. I get it. <laughs> Would that we could say we have not sinned. But we and all those who came before us have sinned. How could we not feel a sense of shame about this? Year after year, we recite the Vidui, beating our chest at the mention of each transgression and promising to do better. And yet, year after year, this list remains exactly the same. Whether we have committed one of these sins or whether we have tolerated these sins within our midst, we just can't seem to get it right. And because we keep coming back to it over and over again, because this list remains the same, you might begin to suspect, you might begin to suspect that this is just the way things are. This is just the way we are. Maybe we do bad things because we are bad people. But this is the problem with the word sin. So encumbered by this idea inherited from Christianity that human beings are fundamentally flawed, constrained from the very first few days of our existence by the original sin of Adam and Eve. This idea is anathema to Judaism, which believes that we're actually all right. In the morning liturgy, the rabbis included the prayer, Elohai neshamash natatabi tahorahi. God, the soul that you have placed within me is pure. It is good. And because it's good, our tradition posits the possibility of teshuva, the idea that we can reflect on our behavior, things we might feel guilty about, and rather than become mired in shame, work to change how we act. The vidui is a list of chata'im, of sins, of behaviors, not character flaws. Our sins are what we do, not who we are. And chet, the word that we unhelpfully translate as sin, would actually be better rendered as missing the mark. It comes from the same family of words used to describe archery. We knocked the arrow, we drew it back, and we let it fly. Yet because we lacked conviction, or because we were distracted, or because we were afraid, or we were sad, or we were angry, the arrow didn't hit its target. And yes, more often than not, it is our fault when our aim isn't true. And this should make us feel guilty. So that next time we're a bit more honest, or a bit more focused, or a bit more thoughtful, but it should not lead us to shame. You are the archer. You are the force behind the bow. You are the hope and the courage to let that arrow go, but you are not the arrow, neither the one that successfully hits its target, nor the one that lands somewhere in the field 
beyond its intended mark. Our capacity for good is balanced by the fact that sometimes we do bad things. And the good we experience in the world is tempered by the reality that bad things happen to us, both those which we bring upon ourselves and those we don't deserve. Standing at the cusp of a new year, our tradition invites us into this mess. This is neither a time to pretend that we are flawless, nor a moment to become paralyzed by the belief that we are irredeemable. Instead, we grapple with the fact that we are human beings living very, very human lives. We are Yisrael, after all, those who wrestle with God a name inherited from our ancestor Jacob after he fought with an angel on the banks of the Yabok River. The name was a blessing, to be sure, but one given at a moment of intense uncertainty and doubt. Jacob stood quite literally between the consequences of his actions, both good and bad, his wives, his children, all that he worked so hard for on one side of the river, and his brother, whom he had wronged so many years before on the other. And so the rabbis say that perhaps Jacob didn't wrestle with an angel at all, that instead the mysterious being he grappled with through the night was in fact himself as he worked to reconcile the person he had been with the person he hoped to become. To strive, not despite, but because of the mess of being human, of being alive, is our birthright. Each of us holds the pieces of broken things. Each of us has failed in some way. And it would be easy to look at the scattered arrows left in our wake and wonder if they meant anything. This arrow, divorce. This arrow, being fired from your job. This arrow, another unsuccessful round of fertility treatment. This arrow, relapse. This arrow, remission. But you are not the arrow. You're the archer who took the risk of loving someone. You're the archer who showed up to work even when it was hard. You're the archer who had the courage to walk back into the fertility clinic, who had the humility to admit you struggle with addiction, who had the resolve to fight the cancer because every single second you got to spend with your children or your grandchildren was worth the pain of treatment. But the marriage still ended in divorce, you tell me. I no longer have my job, you say. I don't have the family I'd hoped for. I am still picking up the bottle. The prognosis doesn't look so good. Was all that effort worth it? It is so easy when enjoying the fruit of our labor to assign meaning or purpose to our lives. Yes, you say to yourself, this, this is why I work so hard why I fought the battle, why I let arrow after arrow fly, because I finally, I finally let one go that hit its target. It's harder to find meaning when we don't have what we want. When something happens, when something gives away, and you realize that, no, this isn't actually it. This isn't where I want to be right now. And all we're left holding is our regret. If I have nothing to show for it, or perhaps worse, I've come out on the other end wounded and heartbroken. Maybe I shouldn't have tried in the first place. So a few months after making the decision to get divorced, I found myself on a cruise ship sailing around the Mediterranean. 
This was supposed to be a vacation shared with my soon-to-be ex-husband and was now an unexpected mother and son just a single ladies bonding trip. <laughs> my mom's actually sitting up there in the balcony. <laughs> and so watching the sunset on our second or third, probably my third glass of wine, uh, my mom asks if there's anything I will regret about the past seven years. A million things come to mind. All those times I missed the mark when I could have been more honest or more brave or more compassionate. Moments when I should have stood my ground or given ground or taken a step back and realized that whatever was gained or lost wasn't worth fighting about in the first place. Days when I should have been happy but found myself in tears instead or all those tears I swallowed when I should have been safe enough to share them. But for all that could have been answered to my mom's question, I realized that I didn't want to regret those seven years because I actually like who I am now. I like who I am now, broken and pieced back together, scarred but stronger, wounded but capable of a care and a compassion that I didn't know was inside of me until the pain of divorce broke me open. I don't know if I would be here surrounded surrounded by so much love, by an abundant and unconditional love of my chosen family without having experienced the loss of love that comes with separation. Maybe it would have been better, able to share a happier story with all of you than the one I'm telling today, but maybe I would have been worse. I don't know, and there's no way to know. However, I do know where I am now. Within the brokenness, there is blessing, even the simple blessing of understanding my own strength and my own courage and my own tenacity just a little better than I did before for all the mess, for all of the mess that is around me and inside of me, I'm beginning to see, perhaps for the very first time, Elohai Nishamash Natata Bi Tahorahi. The soul that God has placed in me is pure. It is good. And that's a blessing that I cannot take for granted. It's true that sometimes our blessings come with wounds. Wrestling the angel gave Jacob a new name, Yisrael, and a deeper understanding of himself, but the struggle also left him permanently injured. The sun rose upon Jacob as he limped away from the riverbank, his hip wrenched from its socket. Jacob is transformed in both body and spirit, bearing the scars of his past, but with a clearer vision for the future, not just for himself, for every person who will hear themselves called in the name Yisrael, all of us God wrestlers who emerge from the messiness of living with both its wounds and its blessings. And for some of us, these wounds are easy to see. Like Jacob, we limp. Yet others of us have gotten really good at hiding our scars, but they're still there. We are surrounded by brokenness, both that which we carry openly and that which is buried deep within us. I am so sorry for whatever brokenness you're carrying from this past year, whether it's because you made a bad decision or because somebody wronged you or because honestly life sometimes isn't fair. I'm sorry not because you are broken or because you are a failure. I'm sorry because it's hard. 
It's hard. In the Torah, Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Truah, a day of sounding the shofar. And we do sound the shofar 100 times over the course of this holiday. We'll hear it shortly. We begin with Tekiah, one long blast. It is followed by Shvarim, a set of three blasts, or Trua, a set of nine very short blasts, or sometimes both, three blasts, then nine. Each time we end the cycle with Tekiah, a final long blast. Now the rabbis ask, where do we get this peculiar sound, these peculiar notes of the shofar? Are they a, a battle cry, an alarm clock, perhaps the sound of weeping? The 17th century master, the Shnei Luchot Habrit, teaches that they're the sound of heartbreak and resolve. Tekiah, we are whole. We are good. Shvarim, we are broken down, whether through our own decisions or because of the obstacles that face us. Chua, sometimes we are surrounded by brokenness, both around us and within us, and the way forward is hard to find. But then Tekia, we emerge wounded, but stronger, braver, kinder, blessed with a deeper understanding of who we are and who we want to be. Whole, broken a little, broken a lot, but then whole again. Then finally, at the end of Rosh Hashanah, one final note, the Tekia Gedullah, a single blast held as long as possible. And with it, the triumphant and powerful conviction that we are able to rise from the brokenness because even when it seems to be all around us and inside of us, we are not broken. You are not broken. Shana Toba. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening.